You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. focus on a new series. series. We're, we're almost in December. We're four Sundays away from the Sunday before Christmas Eve. I know that we're getting excited about that. And so we're going to start that journey here on this Sunday in November towards the manger, towards, uh, towards the celebration of Christ coming into the world. And we'll do that by celebrating and traveling through a phrase that we call Advent. And maybe you've heard that phrase before. We celebrate it here quite often. Maybe that word is new to you, but in either position, it is important that we remember and remind ourselves what it is. And so Advent is derived from the Latin word adventus, and it simply means coming or arrival. Advent means arrival. And originally, it was a season of preparation that was connected to Christian baptism. And so before you were baptized, 40 days before you were baptized, you began a process of penance and repentance and prayer and fasting that culminated in your baptism. There was little connection between Advent, the phrase, and Christmas that we know. And then in the 6th century... Roman Christians began to link Advent with the anticipation of God's arrival. But it wasn't his first arrival, God in flesh in Jesus. It was his return. They were anticipating Christ's return to the earth. Most people in that day, like a lot of people in our day, thought that Christ's return was imminent. And so they began to anticipate and remind themselves and remember that Christ would come again. They developed a season. And it was not till the mid-ages, the Middle Ages, that that Christians began to connect Advent with the present understanding of, of Christmas. They linked it to God's first arrival in flesh in the manger. And they did that so that they could remember and reflect and rest in the same anticipation and waiting that our ancestors did before Christ came onto the scene. And so that's the journey of Advent. So why do we do this? Well, in modern day, we celebrate Advent through the first, or I should say the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. It's a season that prepares us for the arrival of Christ, the God-child, Jesus, And it is a desire that we have to make present an ancient anticipation that we can reflect and remember and rest in that same anticipation and hope that our early believers had before Christ came, that we might inform our own waiting, our own anticipation, and remember that God was faithful to his promise, and he will be again. And so how do we do that? How do we celebrate Advent? Well, Advent is a season that focuses on God's greatest and deepest gifts for humanity. 
God's greatest and deepest gifts for humanity are hope and love and joy and peace. Advent brings remembrance and reflection on how God has settled our deepest needs and our wants, these beautiful God-given gifts of hope, love, joy, and peace. And so that's how we do it. We reflect on those things, and we learn about those things. You know, last week I was outside trying to get our house in order for the upcoming winter, and as I was outside, my daughters were there, and, and they decided to play soccer, and in the midst of it, my oldest, Camille, uh, she just went ahead and determined where the goals were, and then she developed teams. So there's two people out there, my, my youngest and my oldest. Ellie was on the opposing team, and then Camille just said, hey, get the ball, and she started running. Now, here's the thing that you need to know about my youngest, Ellie. Her most favorite person in the entire world is Camille. And so when she was told that she was on the opposite team, she collapsed in despair. She just could not handle it. And so to bring peace and enjoyment into that situation and to try to be a good dad, I suggested that they would just kick the ball back and forth. That would be a good rhythm for them. And Camille told me this. She said, no, dad, I know how to play soccer. No, thank you. To which I entered a dad lecture, all right, because that's what dads do. I entered a lecture on the importance of being teachable, on the importance of practicing the fundamentals of a game for greater enjoyment of that game. And I felt like I nailed it. That was a good lecture. And so my girls got a ball, they went, they kicked it back and forth three times, and they went on to something else. <laughs> Did not result in what I was hoping it for. And so let me transition from a dad lecture into a pastoral lecture, and maybe I'll get a better response here. I really believe that one of the ways that we get in our way towards a deep and meaningful relationship with the Lord is a rooted belief that we have that new is almost always better than old, that the future is almost always more significant than our past. There's, there's one university, the University of York, that did a study recently that found we like new things not because of their necessity in our life, not because of their usefulness of their life. We like new things simply because they are new. It doesn't matter what they are. We just like them because of their newness. And so as I reasoned with my daughters, I reason with us today in this space. Sometimes we think that we have this faith thing figured out. Sometimes we think we know how to play soccer when we really don't. Sometimes we think that the only thing that really matters is what lies in front of us, and that there aren't beautiful, old, important truths for us to remember and reflect on. And so, believer, I remind you today that there are building blocks. There are fundamental truths of our faith that we will never graduate from, that we will be a student of for the rest of our life, that we must know and remember and repeat its knowledge over and over and over again. I think what can be said of many of us of faith is that we have a faith that hinges on the next feeling, the next experience, the next revelation from God that motivates our hearts that we're really going to do this thing now. We're really going to live out this faith. I'm really going to do this with gusto until it doesn't. We go in phases of that. But what we really need is to be an expert in the basics, to be experts in the basics. And Advent 
focuses us to ponder the simple truths of the gospel of Christ, to reacquaint ourselves with the beauty of hope and love and joy and peace, not as the world has corrupted and defined them, but as the gifts that were given by a good creator to his creation. And so today we begin that journey with looking at hope. And we'll do that by looking in one of the Psalms, Psalms 33. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn there. We will be in verse 13, all the way down to 22. Psalm 33. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their souls from death, And keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. Even as we hope in you. Would you pray with me? Lord, that is truth. Whether or not our hearts recognize it, Lord, that is truth. And so, Lord, will you, by your spirits, guide our hearts into deeper understanding of it, that you will do your work in our life, that you will be the great physician, that you will bring to us healing from ourselves. And so, God, I just pray for this moment. I pray for these words, Lord, that you would use them to elevate yourself in our lives. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. I love that last phrase. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Have you ever pondered uh, on the question, where does hope come from? I get paid to do that. So I'm pondering on this question, where does hope come from? It certainly is not part of God's image in us. Hope was not a part of God's initial creation. Hope is not a characteristic or an attribute of God. God doesn't hope. What would God hope in or what would God hope for outside of a Chick-fil-A in Bluffton? All of us together in that, right? No, God is dependable. He's trustworthy. He's unshakable. He's all true. He knows all. He is everywhere. He controls everything by his power. God doesn't hope, friend. God knows. God knows. So where did hope come from? Hope comes from a world. Hope comes into the world, I should say, after mankind is separated from God in our sin. Before that, we we walked in this joyous, infinitely satisfying, joyful relationship with the creator God who walked in our midst. But after the fall, after we were deceived and man and woman chose themselves over God, after we were banished from the garden in the presence of God itself, humanity 
began to feel the effects of that break. They felt the consequences of a life that was no longer in the presence of the Lord. And from that very inception, from that very moment, we long for home again. We longed to be in the presence of God again. We longed to be with him. And an absence was created. An absence was developed, and it was noticed. Have you ever visited a place that you spent much time in? Years later, you came back to it, and you walked into it, and you looked around, and you're flooded with memories. And you're just thinking about all the wonderful things that happened in this building, and you start feeling something. You say, something's, something's not right here. Something's missing. And maybe you say it out loud, and, and one of your friends says, yeah, yeah, yeah. There used to be this statue. You remember the statue that was here, and we used to sit in front of it, and we did all these things in front of it? And you go, oh, yeah. yeah. I remember that now. That's what's missing. That is sort of like us. We're a little like that. There is something missing in us, something off, something deep within us that is aloof, that often goes unnoticed. We can't quite put our finger on it, but we know that we're lacking. We can't quite explain it. You know, many of us have lost loved ones in our life over these last few years to which the holidays serve as a continual reminder of their absence. The Christmas season tends to provide this ultra-concentrated season that is fuller of hope and joy and love and peace than almost any other time of the year. Some of us call it nostalgia. Some of us say we're just festive, but certainly this is a richer, fuller season, which is no coincidence that it occurs around the celebration of God coming into earth. But in that fullness, what can make the holidays so difficult is the things that we once anticipated because of that loss, within that fullness of the season, we almost begin to disdain as we approach the holidays. We move to anxiety and sadness when you enjoy something so much, when you love something so deeply, when it is gone, it leaves a crater that extends as deep as the mountain once soared. And that is true of this season. And as much as we can and as often as we can, friend, we mourn with you in those things. That crater, our fall, has created a longing. A longing is a grief and a mourning, a desire to have back what we once had. We know that we can't. We know that we can't reclaim the grave. Reality tells us that this is our new world, a life without them, and we long for what was. And this is what creation was after the garden, after the fall, after our choice. We were in a deep crater, a deep hole fully realizing what we had and knowing that we can never have it back again. We were longing, but in that same pit of despair, hope was realized. Hope was realized. 
Do you know what the difference between hope and longing is? It's a belief that help is on the way. It's a belief that in one who says, I can fix this. If you're being crushed by a mountain of debt, do you know when longing turns into hope? When you believe that there's a way out. When you believe that there's a way out. This is where humanity was. We were in a crater, exposed, caught in our sin, guilty and without hope. We deserve to be crushed by the weight of God's holiness and perfection, but instead of destruction, what was said to be certain death for us in taking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil gave way to grace. And in that moment, instead of condemnation, God made a promise to us. He made a promise. He spoke to our enemy. He spoke to Satan, the deceiver, disguised as Satan. And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What God said in that moment is that one day, one will come against you, enemy, who will kill you and destroy you, and you will maim him, and you will think that you will hurt him, but you have not, and he will kill you. And this begins God's redemption plan for the world, that God would destroy humanity's greatest enemy, and he would redeem us. God said, there's a way out. He said, I can rescue you. I can fix this. And it's on that premise that hope enters into the world, floods into the world. What is our hope anchored in? It's God and his promises. Our hope is anchored in God and his promises. We, in the moment, in this moment, are hopeful people. But hope wasn't a part of God's original design, but it has been ingrained in creation ever since the fall. Hope reveals to us that something is off. Hope reveals to us that something is missing. Hope is actually evidence of our need for redemption. In fact, it is even evidence of God himself. We are perpetually hopeful people, are we not? Living from one hope to another with the premise that someday we will find a hope that cures us. We know that we need hope. We are a hopeful people, but we are confused on where that hope comes from. Our hearts in this day have convinced ourselves that we now are the author of our own heart, of our own hope. And I love this psalm. I love Psalm 33. I love that it displays God looking down on his creation from the heavenly realms, pondering over his creation. He sees us. He knows us. He's patient with us. He watches over our deeds. I imagine him looking over us like I look over my infant, right? Oh, here we go. We're going to do this now. Oh, he's eating paper now. He's eating paper. Let's get it out of his mouth. God sees us. And what does he see? What does he see in us? He sees a lot of people trying to fix their station in life, trying to find redemption and wholeness through lots of lesser silly things. He sees a broken creation who have convinced themselves that they are their own hope which is the root of our problem. You know, this psalmist talks about armies and strengths and warriors and war horses. What does he call all of those things? He calls them false hopes. 
because they're counterfeits, they're substitutes that a hopeful humanity has created and pursued instead of the God who spoke hope into existence. And we may not relate to those ideas of war horses and warriors and armies, but we can relate to what they mean. They convey to us power and status and wealth and popularity and reputation. These are the instruments, the outcomes that we seek in this life. They are what we hope in, and we believe that they will give us a way out. If we just had that, if we just did this, if they just knew this, hope after hope after hope after hope, and as they always do, don't they? They never amount to what we hope for. Humanity has compromised hope. <laughs> we have compromised it. From a certainty that was based upon God and his promises into a wishful thinking, we were simply trying to find all the darts that we can and throw them against the wall and hope that one eventually sticks. We are blinded today to our own hopelessness. We have lost our ability to see ourselves in that pit of despair. We have lost our ability to see our longing. Advent is good for us. It is good for us because it connects us back to a shared hope, a common faith, a common belief that has satisfied and sustains God's people for millennia now. We have a shared faith that comes to us from a faithful but broken people who did their best to remain true to who God was. And we are reminded, and to be reminded, of that hope. You might find happiness. You might have find happiness in a moment. You might find success in a season. You cannot, though, redeem yourself. You can be satisfied in revenge, but you cannot restore what is broken in you. Hope has one key. Your perpetual hoping has one author. And it has always been that way. And it will always remain that way. I want you to listen to the lament of God's people that was written by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before Christ came to the earth. Isaiah the prophet speaks these words in anticipation of what God will do. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Isaiah says, God is going to come back. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Israel or J Jerusalem. For the Lord has com comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. They are rejoicing, longing, remembering God's promise here that one day God will return to the earth. He will come again, and in this time, he will carry good news. You know, there is so much folly that we see amongst the people in our Old Testament. There is so much rebellion, so much pride in God's people, the Israelites. They love themselves. 
and they forget about God over and over and over again. It is a cycle. They are conquered and delivered, conquered and delivered over and over again. They keep getting in their way. But what do they keep coming back to? They taste the bitterness of the world, and they realize, I don't have the answers for this. I keep making things worse. And God graciously allows them back. False hope after false hope after false hope. And by God's grace, they come back. And ultimately, they got to see what we celebrate in this season. The completion of that hope. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Why is Jesus Christ the hope of the world, you ask? Because he has redeemed us, he has saved us, he has restored us. Christ takes back the grave. He defeated your worst enemy, death and sin. And so when we read things in the Old Testament, like Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, what we want to do is bend these scriptures and their hopefulness towards ourselves. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says this, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. And we think this and we get rah, rah, that God is gonna, he's gonna give me what I want. He's gonna give me all the desires that I need. But friends, this verse is not about you. This is about Jesus. Christ is God's plan. It is his plan for welfare and not for evil. It is plans for our hope and our future. What does Isaiah remind us of when it comes to salvation? Where does salvation come from? It comes to those who say, our God reigns. Our God reigns. That is our hope, friends, that our God reigns because without him we have no hope. And what we celebrate in this season is a joyful knowledge that hope has arrived. And that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so this is our big idea today, friend. It's our big idea. Our hope is not wishful thinking. It is eagerly awaiting God to be God. Eagerness for him to be the only thing he can be, faithful and good. That is hope. And in this season, let us reflect on a God who has always been true to his word and has always been faithful to his people, who has put hope into our hearts. He has spoken hope into existence. It is God's grace to us that we feel and sense the longing of our own hearts that comes from the creator of our own brokenness. Hope comes to us when we put the finger on our despair and say, I know what that is, and I know that it came, where it came from. It comes from my creator, whom I need to be rescued from, with. Don't ever confuse loving God. Don't ever confuse loving God, meaning that he will give us everything that we want in this life, that he will give us all the desires of our hearts. No, all of life is God's plan to humble us, to see our need for him, the folly of ourselves in the world, that we might put our hope in the author of our life, the creator of our life, the giver of our lives. Tertullian, who's a very early Christian historian, 
he writes this. He says, hope is patience with the lamp lit. Hope is patience with the lamp lit. Believer, we know how this ends. We know how this ends. Like the story has been written. We know what lies in front of us. God will prevail. He will prevail. And you will prevail because of him. Not one person in this world has ever done that. Not one person has ever prevailed without Christ. Every single person who has lived has seen their grave. Only in Christ can we prevail. All other life is hopeless and meaningless. Our hope isn't in a better life. It isn't about wealth or power or status or population or popularity because none of that matters. None of it will give us life. Our only hope is in the risen Christ who destroyed the grave. Not to live as one who's consumed by ourselves, but that we would be consumed with God. His life, his journey, his love, his grace, his spirit. Your God reigns, and that is your guarantee that even in the midst of your most difficult season, in the midst of your most difficult hardship, and even in death, that hope exists. God is our only source of hope because he is our help and our shield. And I love how the psalmist writes after that. He says that our hearts are glad in him. Our hearts are glad in him. Is that true of us today? Is that true of us today? Are our hearts glad in him that he is the author of our hope, that our hope is based on his character and his promises, or do we need to be a little King David to ourselves? King David, who's this God-focused king with, with flaws, who writes to himself in several psalms, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Maybe we need to speak that to ourselves today. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Advent brings to us the good news that Jesus came. The beautiful feet of Jesus have come to bring us the good news. God has delivered us. He was true to his word. He is true to his promise. It is the hope that we need. It is the truth that we need to be reminded of in this, our life of in-between. From Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension until his eventual return. In this land of our in-between, from Christ until his return, may you find an eagerness to believe that God will be God, that he will be faithful, and the story of his promised redeemer speaks truth to that. Would you be joyful in a hope that isn't based upon us, but on a God who has always been faithful to his promise, always been true to his words, And that we would remember that through Christ and in Christ, he delivered again. And he will do it again. And so we'll take some time today to remember, to remember Christ, the hope of our world, the hope of our lives, the hope of all. We will share a meal that we call communion and celebration in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. It is because of the risen Christ that we can join together as a community of broken but hopeful believers who seek to love what he loved, to live as he lived, to do what he taught, to be faithful as his servants, and this our time and place. 
And in this meal, we remember Jesus, his promises, the price that he paid for us, who he was, what he said, and what he did. On the night before Jesus died, he took the loaf of bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. After supper, Jesus took the cup and poured it out and said, this is the new covenant, remember me. Today, we do remember. We remember his life, we remember his love, his friendships, his teaching, his dying, and his rising again. We remember him as the hope of the world. And in sharing this meal together, we proclaim a shared faith. And it is our shared proclamation that says this, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, that Christ will come again. Will you join me in that proclamation? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The body of Christ is represented in the bread, the bread of life. It's represented in your cracker. The lifeblood of Christ, the cup of blessing, is represented in the juice. These are the gifts of God's people, and they are great gifts. If you are in here today and you are of the family of God, if you know the Savior, join us at the table. If you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, we're glad that you're here. We want you to be here. This is for the family of God and remembering all the good gifts that God has given to us. And so let us spend a moment to reflect and pray to ask forgiveness where we need to. And when you're ready, as the song plays, partake in communion as you see fit and when you're ready.